Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hi there, this is Tom Myers, and this week on the Bowery Boys, we have a little midsummer treat for you. We're reissuing our 2019 Bowery Boys Movie Club episode on Midnight Cowboy, the Dustin Hoffman, John Voight buddy film that will transport you to New York during a sizzling summer of the late 1960s. Now, if you've never seen the film, don't worry, we'll walk you through it scene by scene with some history and and plenty of bad jokes thrown in too. Or you could stop right now and watch it and then listen to the show. It's up to you. This episode is made possible by our patrons who support us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. Supporters receive special patron-only shows, including the Bowery Boys Movie Club and The Takeout, our show that goes behind the scenes for our regular Bowery Boys episodes. Patrons, thanks again for your support, and be sure to check out your feed today because there's a new movie club waiting for you. Join us as we visit bed for Spike Lee's 1989 classic, Do the Right Thing. But now, grab some popcorn and something cool to drink, and enjoy the show. The Bowery Boys Movie Club presents Dustin Hoffman, John Voight, and Brenda Vaccaro in Midnight Cowboy. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys Movie Club. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. This is our podcast exclusive to those who support us on Patreon, uh, talking about movies that are set and filmed in New York City. This month, we are turning our gaze, turning our attention (laughs) (laughs) to Midnight Cowboy. Actually, it's funny that I... That we make that joke unintentionally, Greg, because we were just saying uh, before we sat down to record this that in a way this is kind of our Pride Month film selection, and that was unintentional. There are two important dates to remember uh, as we go through this show. The first one is May 25th, 1969. That is the release date of Midnight Cowboy, so it was released 50 years ago. This year. In May of 1969. Yes. Okay, and the other the other date? Is June 28th, 1969. So just a tiny bit over a month after the release of Midnight Cowboy. Like, Midnight Cowboy was in all the major movie theaters and was still going. In fact, it w- became a number one box office hit in as late as July. So this was in the movie theaters when the riots at the Stonewall Inn broke out and is sort of the beginning point for the gay liberation movement and for for the gay rights movement. And we bring that up also because uh, Midnight Cowboy obviously tackles some gay themes, though, you know, we hadn't conventionally considered it to be a kind of like gay 
film. Yeah, is, is it, it deals with gay hustlers. Well, we can we can d- d- discuss this. Is this considered a queer film today, an LGBT film? Because uh, I would I could make an argument that it actually that it actually is, and that it shows a, an interesting spectrum of different people throughout the course of the movie that might speak to people today. Yeah, and I think that you know when you look at various lists of you know the twenty five most important LGBT films, Midnight Cowboy is almost always on that list. Mm-hmm. It's you know he's not only a hustler who sometimes turns tricks with gay men, but we also have we see like straight up gay characters. There's also this kind of bromance, sort of romance uh, between the two main characters. Yes, there's so subtext. There's a lot going on here. But wait, we are we really just jumped over a few things here that we usually <laughs> talk about at the top of the show. Yes, Midnight Cowboy. Namely, for people who haven't mm-hmm. seen it, what is this movie about? Are we going to try to sum it up in one sentence? Uh, I, I think I can. It's essentially about the relationship between two men. One of them, Joe Buck, a Texan from out of town who basically escapes his rural town to make it big in New York City. But, you know, in his version of making it big, he wants to be a hustler and he wants to make a lot of money being this statuesque uh, version of masculinity. Then he's a tall drink of water. <laughs> and that character is played by John Voight. Mm-hmm. Then you have Enrico Rizzo, who is called for much of the movie Ratso, played by Dustin Hoffman. Now, he kind of represents, in many ways, the heart and soul of New York City, uh, the reality of New York City. And he befriends John Voight on his journey to becoming a hustler. And the two of them uh, try to make their way together. They're sort of a, a mismatched buddies. This would be a buddy comedy and maybe a different universe, but it, it does take some dark turns. Mm-hmm. And it's really about the things that they learn about each other. Uh, throughout the course of this movie, you see some extraordinary scenes in New York City. Not just Times Square and the 42nd Street scene, the, the hustler world of Times Square, but we also get some insight into like uptown New York. And of course, the East Village makes a very startling appearance in the movie. That was one sentence? Um, with commas and colons. <laughs> there were a lot of M dashes. <laughs> and M dashes. Yeah, okay, it, I'm going to try an actual one sentence okay. synopsis. Mm-hmm. And I don't have this written down anywhere. There are no notes. Okay. All right. But I think I would simply say that Joe Buck moves from rural Texas to New York to make it as a hustler, comma, comma. because he's always been told he's good with women, comma, <laughs> only to find New York much less hospitable to tall Texas drinks of water, <laughs> comma, and he finds himself in a real relationship with only one person, M. Dash, Ratso Rizzo, <laughs> Enrico, comma, Enrico, yeah. played by Dustin Hoffman. Period. All right, you got there. I think. Yeah, that was uh, that was better. Now, the- and it's it is an amazing film, and we've talked about other movies kind of from this era. I mean, the very first was it our first film we did? It was Taxi, Taxi Driver? Yeah, yeah, Taxi Driver, which has a very similar feel to it, although it came out after this, many years afterwards. Even though it is set largely in Times Square, also features prostitution mm-hmm. in its storyline, and really captures the grittiness. And, and that's seven years later. Taxi Driver came out in 1976. I, I feel like when you're watching Taxi Driver, you take it for granted that, you know, this is the, the grimy streets of New York portrayed on film, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing 
really shocking about it. But I think it's important to remember that in in the case of Midnight Cowboy, when it came out in 1969, I believe that this image of New York shocked most of the people oh, who yeah. saw it because New York had not been portrayed exactly like this before. Well, and the the world that's that's shown to us by director John Schlesinger, he he goes quite explicit. In fact, the film was rated X. Now, yes. let me explain that rating because it's kind of a shocking thing when you watch the movie today. You're like, oh yeah, there's a, a little bit of nudity, but um, and there know. are things that are suggested. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, you could turn on television at like 8 p.m. on ABC and find things that are a little bit more risque. But it's it's because of the kind of shocking nature. The subjects had never really been seen um, in a movie this you know this prominent. Also, rated X meant something a little bit different. When the rating system was initiated in 1968, so just the year before, an X meant movies with adult content, but not necessarily explicit films. So A Clockwork Orange and one of our favorites, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Mm -hmm. was a rated X movie. Now, I wouldn't call those pornographic, but those are definitely extreme films compared to the things, you know, Sound of Music was just released a few years before this. So, I mean, you know, so this is is definitely a Not rated X. (laughs) No, no. I'm sure there's a version, though. But what happened with the rated X, um, with this rating, because it wasn't a copyrighted thing, it it initially, it drew people to to these movies. I mean, it was part of the reason Midnight Cowboy was such a big success. So pornographers and makers of adult films said, well, I'm going to slap some X's onto our films. And you know what? It's even better than one X. I'm going to slap three X's onto my films. And so, ironically enough, the scene that is depicted the most in this in this movie, 42nd Street, then becomes lined with these triple X movies. And so that X takes on a different connotation than it did when this film was released in 1969. That is incredible. So when this movie came out... The concept of triple X was, didn't not, really exist. No. I mean, there was definitely pornographic films, but they didn't advertise themselves as such. I mean, that's they didn't go to a board and get a triple X rating. <laughs> that is something they actually just used because it was like... Pity the poor <laughs> pornographer who only gets two Xs. They're like, you know, it could have done worse. Well, so anyway, but this does have a little bit more explicit, uh, not just in the nudity, but let's we should just say up front that there's a lot of, for those people who are sensitive about this, there is, there is a lot of gay slurs in this film. What's interesting oh, yeah. about that is that a lot of them actually come from the mouths of other gay characters. Right. Now, we should add really quickly, the director, John Schlesinger, was a British director, and it's interesting because this is a period now in 1969 where there's a new wave of New York-located directors like Martin Scorsese, for instance, who would actually have a very different style. This movie, Midnight Cowboy, is quite edgy, even sort of trippy and abstract mm-hmm. in many different ways, but actually quite different than almost surreal when you compare it to more of the kind of gritty films that would come out in the 70s by by directors. And he does some fun things like with the editing, you know, where you realize that you're watching something inside Joe's head. You oh, know, yeah. like you're you're watching a vision. I mean, there are flashbacks galore in this movie. <laughs> almost too, it's almost like one of the weaker parts of the movie which we'll get to. There's yeah, a lot of flashbacks. Especially the black and white ones. But then there are also like potential flash forwards where he's having a vision of something 
or there's even like weird cuts where you're seeing the next scene, but still mm-hmm. in that scene, or you're hearing the audio from the next it's scene, clever, but yeah. you're still mm-hmm. in it. So they really do. Schlesinger plays around a lot. I just want to add really quickly that the that screenplays by Waldo Salt, which was the screenplay of a book by James Leo Herlihy. This was not, by the way, a strict adaptation. There's a huge section in the middle of this book that they just kind of drop. And all of the things that are inferred and the flashbacks are actually made explicit in the middle oh. of this book here. So I think that he, Salt did an excellent job of, of kind of reframing that in a way. And yep. this movie was shot in New York in 68, right? During the summer of 1968. And yeah, the whole film. I mean, there's obviously some scenes like Rizzo's apartment. Uh, that's clearly a set. But then most of the film, you, you just see... Rizzo's. The, R- not Rizzo. Rico's. Well, it's his. It's Enrico Rizzo, who everyone calls Ratso. Wait, who's the one from Greece? That's Rizzo. That's Rizzo, yes. Enrico Razzo. Enrico Rizzo, who everyone calls Razzo. Right. It, <laughs> got it. Okay, so by the way, we're at the box office point of the show. How do you how do you think the film performed? Um, well, you know, I have a feeling that people that they were probably they had a case of the jitters, the producers, not knowing if anybody was gonna go see this movie, thinking that the X would scare them off, and I have a feeling that those theaters were yeah. filled. At the end of the year, Midnight Cowboy was the second highest grossing film. It made, get this, $44.8 million uh, in 1968 dollars. Adjusted for inflation, that is $310 million. That is how much the last Thor movie made. I mean... That's great. You know, <laughs> I mean, that really, that really does kind of make me happy. Um, the top five movies that year, I think this says a lot about 1969. Number five was Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. That's sort of a sexual liberation comedy that was uh, very of its time. Fourth place was Hello, Dolly. Uh. Third place, Easy Rider. Second place, Midnight Cowboy. And the number one grossing film by far that year, the phenomenon, was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance mm. Kid. We were clearly going Redford. through a lot of like reinterpretations of masculinity in 1969. And there's kind of something for everybody, though. Yeah. You know? Now, the film, uh, generally considered a classic today, won three Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. John Voight and Dustin Hoffman were both nominated for Best Actor. And who do you think they lost to? Just Carol Channing? <laughs> well, I just think this is an incredibly ironic result, the fact that John Wayne won his first and only Academy Award for the film True Grit, playing an actual cowboy. Although that's definitely an interpretation of the American Western, but he's playing it straight as opposed to John Voight. Wait, so John Voight, yeah, who's not playing it straight. John Voight lost to John Wayne? Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. And by the way, listener, obviously, that was Barbara Streisand in the film version of Hello, Dolly, not Carol Channing, lest we get any Bowery Boys Movie Club hate mail. So uh, let's get this movie started. Yeah, so let's, let's kick up the music and get our synopsis underway. And by the way, listener, if you have not seen this film and don't want to be spoiled of details, stop right here and pick this up after you've watched it. But of course, if you have watched it or you just want to hear these details just going in cold, by all means, keep listening. Everybody's talking at me. 
We open we we open this film actually not in New York City but mm-hmm. a very depressed Texan town a rural yeah. a rural backwater yeah and the very first thing we see actually is a blank drive-in movie screen which is sort of appropriate you know it's like the movies have moved on there's nothing playing here <laughs> and we're in a movie within a movie Greg yeah. I took some film classes. <laughs> then we scan down, and there's a little boy, a little a little cowboy who's on like a little rocking horse in the middle of a windswept playground. It's a very depressed, sad kind of scene, actually. And then we cut to Joe Buck naked in the shower, putting on like one totally pimped out cowboy outfit as he prepares to go in and quit his job at the diner. Now we should just say very quickly that John Voight by this time was a New York theater actor and this was his breakout role. He would later be known for Deliverance and Coming Home where he would win an Academy Award but a lot of us would prefer to just think of him as the father of Angelina Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> Which he is. That's a, that is not a role he played. That's right. a role he has played throughout his entire life. And I and and Tom, we might we may have to do the movie Hackers at some point for our movie club here, which was, was her real breakout film, which was also set in New York, albeit that was in the 90s. Yes, and does not include her father. No, no. No. But yeah, so he's he's getting ready to head in and quit his job. Let's just talk about John for a second um because he plays a hustler, right? Mm-hmm. Or he's soon to play a hustler. He's going from playing a dishwasher in a diner in a small Texas yes. town. He's planning to move to New York City where he knows that women and even some men will pay for some lovin' for some people like him. And lovin's the only th- good thing he's ever been good at. <laughs> As he says, yes. As he says. He is, I will just say, spectacularly handsome. He is oh, yeah. tall and brawny and tan and... He's really good natured. He's perfect for this role because he also plays his naivete. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's let's just say it's very believable, but clearly there's a, a a smart actor playing it. Now at the at the diner, mm-hmm. he's talking to the cook or the, Ralph. Yes, who and he's like, who's like, what are you going to do back east? And so he's trying. He's saying to him that well, women will pay me good money, and and the men well, they're mostly tutti frutties. And mm-hmm. but you know, but I'm I'm going to make a bunch of money. But and they'll e- pay for it too. But they'll pay for it too. And but even Ralph is rather skeptical of this. I mean, you you just see this of like, well, I don't know anything about this. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to be. I kind I think just kind of trying to be nice. And and, you know, he's walking around in this, like, cowboy outfit. Let's talk about that for a second. Because he spends almost the entire movie in this or in a, in a red shirt, mm-hmm. but, like, dressed up like a cowboy. When I first saw it, I didn't know, like, was this the way people dressed in 1968 or 69? I don't think so. Because even here, when he's walking by old farmhands on the street, and guys in straw hats and whatever, and he's, like... He's, he looks like an actor dressed up to, to portray a cowboy on a children's show. Looks like he's yeah. going on Howdy Doody. Well, he's, he's a costume, and we'll actually see this costume worn by other people, but in no way are they authentic. <laughs> no. Like, never. No. And he's even, his suitcase is like a cowhide suitcase. Mm-hmm. He's walking around town, and, and so everybody, even in the restaurant or in the bus in a few minutes, people look at him with kind of a smile and a kind of a smirk and kind of wonder, what is this guy's deal? He's slightly clownish. 
actually. So so he quits his job and he's heading down Main Street or whatever and he walks by Oh, the beauty salon. A beauty salon mm-hmm. that has I believe been closed. Now this is his grandmother's former beauty salon, his grandmother who raised him. We will find out more of that backstory as the film progresses. It's but, very confusing and it's very dark, but it's it, they, dark. but this just seeing this elicits the first of many flashbacks. We see Grandma in her beauty chair, leaning back, and the little Joe giving her a massage, and she's kind of moaning, and it's all very creepy and disturbing. <laughs> yeah. and and he's I, in fact, I'm not even sure you could get away with that in a modern movie today, to be honest. In fact, let's just keep going. <laughs> so then he's on a bus. Yeah, so this next sequence is basically him going cross-country, and it features basically two different kinds of scenes. It's either him interacting with a motley crew of passengers who are themselves maybe like slightly exaggerated in Mm -hmm. in certain ways mixed with more of these flashbacks. And so they go back and forth and meant to be several days that this is happening. And, and during that period, yeah, we're, we're like being introduced to characters who are like a grandmother, a, a mother with her daughter who's like got seasickness or got motion sickness. I only get, oh, you mean, I only get car sick on boats, I think Joe Buck says, um, as, a, as a words of encouragement. And the whole time, Joe's got his trusted battery-operated radio that he's also playing and lifting <laughs> so up to annoying, his ear. So annoying, by the way. Oh. <laughs> Could you imagine sitting... He, at one point later in the movie, he actually has it on during a movie, <laughs> which is kind he's, of extraordinary. There are signs in the subway about basically not to act like Joe, Joe yeah, Buck. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Not to, he, talk about a man-spreader, too. He is spreading off to this movie. <laughs> so... Uh, Amongst the flashbacks, we are introduced to a woman named Annie, although there is a, like, at one point there's a sign that says, Crazy Annie Loves Joe Buck. Mm-hmm. It's it's painted on the side of a water tower. And she, you know, she says this kind of over and over throughout the movie, almost a little too much, if you ask me, this, Love me, Joe. You're the only one, Joe. You're the best, Joe. You're the only one who really loves me, Joe. And so, yeah, we we see that that's another dark thing, even though he's conflicted. He has, like, loving relationships and and sexual relationships with this woman, Annie. But we have a feeling it didn't go well. Then he, he also chats up an old cowhand, an old timer who's sitting there kind of looking at him askance. And that's when I guess I realized that Joe looks like he's playing the part of a cowboy while this is an old cowhand. Yeah, cowboy who's looking ca- at him like, who is that fool? Oh, there's also there's a, cut, a flashback that he has to his mother and maybe her sister, his aunt, leaving him as a young child with his grandmother. Mm-hmm. And he's dressed as a little boy in a little military outfit being left at grandma's back porch. And and we think, oh, OK, grandma's going to raise him. But then it's like a weird montage and we see him in bed with like grandma's grandma and grandma's boyfriend and who's drinking and smoking in bed like this is. This is not good. Needless to say, he's got some edible issues that will be uh, further explored later. At a poll. At a poll. 
As opposed to like edible, like edible <laughs> shrooms or something. No. That will be explored later in the film. Now, I do like the quick cut of when they get to New Jersey because mm-hmm. you you actually see the New York uh, New York Airport, the Seville Motel, which was in North Bergen, and the Pitt Consult Chemical Company that was in Newark. Like that is how New that's Jersey. That's when you know you're in Jersey. <laughs> that's new how New Jersey is depicted. And uh, but in, and on his radio. We finally hear WABC. Ron Lundy. I know. That's that 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 you know you're in New York City. You can also see the Statue of Liberty. And you hear on the radio a montage of radio interviews with women depicting their you know perfect man. But of course we're kind of in his head and Buck's head. So he's sort of imagining that he is this perfect man. Well, yeah, and can I just add to that as a um, college student driving here from Ohio? I would get excited two-thirds of the way across the never-ending state of Pennsylvania on I-80 when suddenly we could pick up WABC, 770 oh, yeah. AM, or WCBS so a, a literal beacon. 880. That's when you knew you were getting close, mm-hmm. when we could finally pick up WABC. So that really resonated with me. And that brings me to just one other side point, a kind of meta point about this whole thing. I think that this movie also talks to the naivete that we all had moving to New oh, York. Oh, I agree, yeah. Anybody who's moved here understands the, the the excitement back home before you move here of what you're going to be with the dream of the city, you know, and and how it's going to embrace you and what it is that you offer that city that it that it needs and it's <laughs> going to embrace. And, and the film does to Buck as it does to all of us. It crumbles and distorts and ultimately destroys many of those ambitions and dreams. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, anyway, um, let's cut now to, to Joe in Times Square proper. He's at the Hotel Claridge, which was at 44th Street and Broadway. Today, that is the building where ABC is, you know, where they film Good Morning America. <laughs> that, is where, that is where his hotel was. So unfortunately, that building is no longer with us. In fact, we cut from that bus ride where he's sitting next to the nun directly to a view of Times Square as the bellhop pulls on some blinds. That's a great cut. Mm-hmm. It just goes oh, like, yeah. boom. The blinds fly up to reveal, the ultimate reveal, Times Square 1968 when it was shot during yeah. the summer. Oh, right, right. And I love this video. I spent some real time, as I'm sure you did too, with just like frozen images oh, looking of course, out of his yeah. window. Because it's a time capsule. Mm-hmm. You're just, I mean, that is not a film set. That is Times Square 1968. Uh, and what does he see outside? Well, he sees, among other things, dumpy theaters right across the street on the... So we should mention, for people who don't know that ABC building, that is 44th Street and uh, 7th Avenue on the east side of the street. So mm-hmm. on the southeast corner. So he's his window is positioned so that when he looks out, most of the time, we're looking north. His vantage point is looking north up at Times Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, he sees, like, across the street, there are dumpy theaters. This is before there's, like, the Marriott Marquis and other really tall buildings over there. So this is a low theater. They're playing, at the time, Yours, Mine, or Ours, starring oh. Lucille Ball <laughs> and Henry Fonda, which came out in the summer of 68. Okay. Above that, um, above the theater, is a big billboard for the new cast album of Dr. Doolittle. Uh, starring Rex Harrison, uh, which had been a big hit. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a little bit farther up um, on the same side of the street, we see a sign for the Horn and Hardart Automat, 
uh, at that original location. We talked about that uh, around 46 or 47. Uh We talked about that in our Automat show this past year. And then there are all kinds of like booze and drinking signs. There's the Coca-Cola sign. There's the Hague Scotch Whiskey sign right outside his window. So what what essentially you're saying is this is not Hollywood CGI that they might do today. This was how Times Square looked in the summer of 1968 when they filmed this. I mean, so they they just hooked up this camera and filmed the whole thing actually in the hotel. Which is amazing. And another thing we see is on Broadway, there are three to five lanes of traffic. Okay? Mm -hmm. Like farther up and farther down, there are four or five lanes. And going through Times Square proper, it's down to three. Where almost all of that stretch is now pedestrian only. All of that information in just this like one freeze frame. That's extraordinary. All the history that's right, not only outside of your window, but outside this character's window. Do you think Joe cared about any of that? Oh, well, sure. Well, I mean, he certainly looked out the window when he ripped up a postcard and threw it outside. Yeah. Who was he writing that to? He was writing it to Ralph. But did he, if Ralph eventually got a postcard. No, see, that's the confusing thing. Oh, he writes dream. it saying, this is where I am. And then he imagines what Ralph would think. Oh, that's right. Yes. So he rips it into small pieces and throws it out the window. So Ralph never gets the postcard. No. Now, you think that 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 scene had visual information. What we next get is this amazing montage of New York as as Joe hits the street in a sort of real lame attempt to start, like, picking up clients. Is this your favorite scene? Well, it's not only is it my favorite scene, it has one of my favorite shots of all all time in New York, but I'll get there in a second. So this is just him strolling in all of his like Texan drag, um, walking down Fifth Avenue, strutting, strutting down Fifth Avenue. You see the uh, you see buildings that are actually still there, like the Swiss National Tourist Office, which is on West 59th Street. At one point, he stops at Tiffany and Company, where he is ogling a lady who's sort of looking at some jewelry in the window, maybe sort of sizing her up as she's sizing that piece of jewelry up. Mm-hmm. Interesting, of course, this had been the site of Breakfast at Tiffany's. And there's some interesting comparisons. Just a couple years before. Yeah, between these two characters, actually. They have a lot in common, weirdly enough. And he's not only sizing her up. He's he's basically sizing up every woman on the street. Of which, like, half the people are women. And the whole time, that same theme song is playing. Everybody's talking at me. Yeah, so this Nielsen song, by the way, which is, uh, you know, almost the thing that comes out of the movie the most. I mean, it's it's an absolute classic. You hear it on soft rock radio stations everywhere. That, along with the John Barry score, is also some of the uh, the music is just absolutely classic. The harmonica work. He does eventually approach a woman. Oh, yeah. So this is actually my favorite shot in a New York City movie. And it's when he's on Park Whoa. Avenue. He's in the Upper East Side. And you're looking down. And what you do not see is the MetLife building. But you can see the Helmsley building in the right. background. It is just this ex- beautiful, beautiful shot. But, of course, what you're paying attention to is he's accosted this woman looking for the Statue of Liberty. Which is really Excuse just... Me, ma'am. Yeah, it's his pickup line. Yeah. And she's like, are you serious? Why, you're not looking for the Statue of Liberty at all. No, ma'am, I ain't. Well, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) And then she walks off, and he has this, like, actual look of surprise on his face. He didn't expect that encounter to go that way. He thinks that he's going to walk, like, strut out onto the streets of New York, be able to walk up to wealthy-looking women... Yeah. Who might appreciate him. At any time of the day. And then go back and basically be 
I assume they're they're sort of paid kept boy. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean that's what he's looking for. I mean it's startling to think the late 1960s New York a strange man coming up to women and thinking that that would be the reaction is like a height of uh, of confusion, <laughs> I think. But he does meet a more receptive woman. A woman named Cass, played by Sylvia Miles, who's out there with her poodle. And so when he walks up to her and asks where the Statue of Liberty is, she replies, it's up in Central Park taking a leak. If you hurry up, you'll make the supper show. <laughs> but with such, a, with such a deadpan, that's, that is my favorite line in the whole thing. <laughs> I just want to say really quickly that Sylvia Miles this uh, would become a rather flamboyant New York City personality, although she really wouldn't reach the heights of this performance in which she was nominated for an Academy Award for just a small role. But in the scene, she's standing there trying to get her dog, Baby, to go to the bathroom. Um, they go up in her apartment, which is at 114 East 72nd Street between Park and Lex. And she's on the phone with her boyfriend, Maury, who is planning to take her out for dinner. His wife is otherwise occupied. And at the same time, she's on the phone with him. And we have Baby, the the dog, kind of like at her feet. She's undressing Joe. And uh, they, you know, they get busy. (laughs) At the end, he says, okay, it's the big reveal. He's going to approach her for money and see how this works. And so he says... I, I, I hate to bring up business. And she's like totally distracted. She doesn't obviously understand that he's expecting her to pay for this moment. And he said, well, I'm a hustler. And she says, well, a person's got to make a living. And he's like, I don't think you understand. And then it gets ugly. <laughs> because it, it dawns on her that she is now expected to give him money. You were going to ask me for money? Who do you think you're dealing with? So she gets offended. But I mean, in a way, she sort of turns the con on him. Totally. Because she ends up getting almost all of his money. She flings herself down. I'm 28 years old. Right? That's That's not true. She flings herself down and she ends up taking $20 from him because she doesn't have any money for a cab. $20... Which is today about $150. Well, he doesn't know the value of, of, of cab fare in, in New York City. Now, before we get to the, a very, very pivotal scene, there's a quick shot of something that means a lot to me in the New York uh, skyline. And that is the old Mutual of New York building at 1740 Broadway, which a lot of people know for its glowing digital money, M-O-N-Y sign. Right. That, um, which that, that spelling comes in later. But it's it tells the weather. And um, when I first moved to New York in the 1990s, my first job was a couple blocks north of that building. But I could see it out of my window every single day. And it's it's a it's a curious and well remembered part of the old mid century Times Square mm. skyline. Yeah, and it shows up again and again. Mm-hmm. So we cut to Joe in a midtown, we believe, bar. We don't know exactly where this bar is, but he's sitting at the bar next to Rizzo, Enrico Rizzo, who they will continually call. Ratso. Right. Enrico Salvatore Ratso Rizzo. So, played Dustin, by Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, played by Dustin Hoffman in, in a, a classic 
classic acting performance. He had been on the New York stage for many years. He was actually a staple of off-Broadway theater. He was very successful in the off-Broadway downtown village scene. Uh, Then finally, in 1967, he made The Graduate. So this was like his, like he had done a small role in a film before this, but this was his first mate. Like what a, what a, I mean, what a kick What a debut. Right? <laughs> and we should also mention he's from Los Angeles. So he's playing like the native New Yorker, right? He, but yes. he's from LA and John Voight's the native New Yorker playing the sort of like clueless <laughs> cowboy. There's a little bit of a switcheroo in their real, and their real personas. By the way, though, Dustin Hoffman at this time was living on a West 11th Street, so it was probably very easy for him to get to work. Nice detail. <laughs> uh, they are approached by a gender-bending, I think, prostitute? We should just, yes, we should just state right for the record that its depiction of gay life is a little skewed here because there are thousands of gay men that are living in New York City. The ones that we are seeing are the ones that are hanging out at bars around 42nd Street. So, right, uh, and so, working a lot of trade. Oh, yes. So, one could look at this movie and object strongly because it's not really showing the full flavor of gay existence oh, in the late We're 1960s. We're also not like <laughs> attending a church service in 1969. <laughs> no. I mean, this is a movie. No. So so these, so these some of these people are, are kind of na- nasty, although, albeit also kind of fabulous, oh, yeah. I would say. I mean, she is definitely <laughs> one of my favorite people in this whole movie. We hear her referred to as many different things. I don't know if I should say her or him because actually we see him dressed or we see the character dressed in different ways. In sort of amb- in an ambiguous manner. As as Rizzo and Joe Buck here are talking at a booth, like she knows what's going on. She says, if he's sitting over there and you're sitting over there, how is he going to get his hand in your pocket? But I guess you've got that all figured out. Good night, sweets. That could be interpreted two different ways. Yeah. Like, oh, is this going to be a hookup? Or is he a con artist? It also introduces the idea that other people are taking Joe and Rizzo as being a couple. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a question of what they what is their relationship? Are they friends? Are they colleagues? Are they lovers? We don't really know. Many times during the movie, Rizzo uses a bunch of like anti-gay slurs, but that shouldn't be a convincing case for why he or may not he may or may not be gay. There's some subtext here that some have read uh, revisionist film historians have read as being a kind of quasi queer love story, but that is for the that is for the viewer to decide. And you can watch the movie with that in mind and probably see an entirely different film. <laughs> but um, back to the bar. So basically, Joe realizes now in Ratso Rizzo, he's got a friend. He celebrates by buying him and everybody around a round of drinks. He's still like living large because he's just, you know, he lost 20 bucks, but he feels like he just finally found a friend. Rizzo, meanwhile, says to Joe, you can't just say you're here to be a hustler. What are you talking about? You need management. You need management. You can't just walk out there. You know, the women you need to attract, rich women, they're not walking around 42nd Street. You need my friend, O'Daniel. He's, he runs a big ring, he says. So now we're out on the street and we're walking around. We're going to call up O'Daniel, Rizzo is, to like set up an appointment for Joe to go up there. It is during the stroll that we see the best-known scene from Midnight Cowboy, which is as they're crossing 58th 
58th Street at 6th Avenue, a car almost hits Rizzo. A cab. A cab almost hits Rizzo. And of course he says... Slamming the front of the cab, he says, Hey, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Get out of here. To the cab. Classic New Yorker. <laughs> so and the- that was not scripted. Oh, well, I mean, that's I mean, that's why it seems so real, because it was. <laughs> yeah, and they just they just kept going, and he, he uh, Hoffman just ad-libbed that. But we keep walking. We see the Plaza Hotel in the background at some point, which is extraordinary to see. We see all the horses and carriages, and we see a line of old-fashioned phone booths. Yes, and it, actually on the way to the phone booths, we also see a younger gentleman sitting with an older lady uh, having an afternoon cocktail across Manhattan, from the, yes. outside of the plaza. And uh, as they're walking by, Rizzo pretends that he's also in O'Daniel's prostitution ring mm-hmm. um, and just says to him, hang in there. And and the older woman responds, what's that? <laughs> so Rizzo yes. takes Buck to a strange building and where he's, he thinks he's going to meet O'Daniel. Right. But he gets to this floor. Oh, and, this, and he's getting paid. Oh, and he's going to get paid. Oh, right. So he, he got $10 already. Right, uh, from, from, from Buck Joe. And from Joe. And then he's going to get another $10. But when he, they get up to this scary floor, this scary building in the scary elevator, he essentially pushes Joe out, gets the other $10, that, and, and says that he can meet him later at his place at the Sherry Netherland Hotel, which is actually one of the nicest, oldest hotels. And we'll find out he lives nowhere near it. Right. And Joe's like, oh, the Sherry's Netherlands? Okay, whatever. By the way, on, on when they, he had used the phone booth, one thing we should just mention, did you notice, because it's right across from the plaza, there, there are picketers, there are protesters oh, outside. Yeah. And uh-huh. there, so there's like this kind of like hippie weird happening, happening outside, holding up signs that say things like, liberate freedom. <laughs> yeah, there's sort of generic protest signs. But I mean, this is such an era of protest that honestly, seeing a protest out in the street on any, any given day would not have been a surprise in the late 60s. That's right. And right behind them is the GM building, the giant white skyscraper, which had opened in 1968. Oh, so it interesting. was brand new. It uh-huh. had been completed in 68. But back to O'Daniel's apartment. All right. So Let's just say How does that he go? walks in, t- he knocks on the door, he opens up, and uh, here's a man we think is O'Daniel, played by an actor named John MacGyver. Um, who so is good. One of these actors who's in like literally every TV show in the 1960s. He has such a familiar face. Right. right? He's, he's in everything. Which makes it creepier. It makes it creepier because you're like, I know him, but he's in a bathrobe. Yeah. In fact, five years after this film, MacGyver would go on uh, to star in the musical film Mame as Mr. Babcock. Oh, see? Yes, he looks like Mr. Babcock in a bathrobe. You don't <laughs> yes. want to see that. No. So there's like this really uncomfortable scene where it looks like... He's about to solicit Buck for sex, and there's a They're bunch talking, of like, yeah, like double entendre left and right, right, and <laughs> on different di- different planes. They're not. They're talking around each other. They don't realize that they're not saying the same thing. And Joe thinks that they're about to get it on, or that that he's going to hook him up with all kinds of women. Instead, what happens is. O'Daniel opens the door and there is a sort of like a light, a light up Jesus. An altar. An altar. And all of a sudden you realize he's actually in the hands of uh, some kind of, of evangelical. Fanatic. Who's, who's going to. A either, total fanatic. Yeah. Who, he has uh, his crazy eyes. <laughs> and yeah, 
He's got a bathroom altar, and then we have a flashback to Buck, like, traumatized by his adolescent baptism. Well, and this scene resonated with me because when I was a kid, I was afraid of being baptized. Because I was from a evangelical background where you had to just be dunked in the water. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't just a little sprinkle. Mm-hmm. And I was deathly afraid of water when I was a kid, so it took me forever to be baptized. So anyway, that that I was like, Joe, I hear you. Get out of that room. So he he escapes. He runs for it. He, <laughs> he, he runs for it, and there's a what I call the race for Rizzo or race for Ratso montage where he's looking for Ratso all over. It's black and white and yeah. he's like in the subway. I even wrote, I actually called the sequence the realization sequence because not only is he looking for, for Ratso, but over the next few scenes, he his his exterior, his confident exterior pretty much crumbles and disintegrates. Oh. This uh, is a wake up. Yeah, so this is like when like, yeah, the big splash of water in his face, essentially. He, he's on an F train. He sees him on another car. Then we're back up. We're at Times Square. He's back at his bar. The bartender doesn't know where Rizzo is. Then he like... He is back in his hotel. He looks out at the Mutual of New York. We see yeah. money again. Um, he's watching this really bizarre thing on the Ernie Kovacs show, which is just, it's too bizarre to even explain, but it involves dogs and toupees. Then, <laughs> so he's strolling around 42nd Street, by the way, and you can, uh, amongst the delights of 42nd Street that you can see is Hubert's Museum that he walks by briefly. I mean, that you can see briefly. The Dime Museum. What he also notices, Greg, is... That there are a lot of other cowboys who look like him. There are a lot of other attractive men who are just standing and watching people walk by and trying to make eye contact and trying to get some business. Yeah, it's and not going to be. It's not going to be easy. Essentially, is and it? and we see that he's been resisting that. Right, he's been thinking he can just walk up to people and he's special. And he, I think, it's starting to dawn on him that. He, he he might have to do what these other guys are doing. What, but what is he going to do? He goes back to his hotel room, and the, the so some days have passed here, right? Some days or weeks have passed. Yeah, we don't know exactly the time frame, but it's like definitely realization has set in at this point. Especially when the receptionist at the front desk of the Claridge says, oh, this is for you. And it's a note from management that he's been locked out of his room for non-payment. Yes. They won't even give him his clothes. So at this point, Joe is locked into the cowboy outfit that he's got on his body. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes to the diner to see what he can scrape up. He doesn't have any money and ends up sitting across from a, from a very unusual woman and a child we think might be her son, <laughs> but it's really <laughs> hard to know because she's on drugs. She is on drugs and she is tripping out and she's doing a magic trick with a toy rat mouse she's making it come out of her her hair and down her arm and the boy thinks it's funny by the way they are in an automat that uh is in an automat you can see the different stations in the background you can see the water station behind him and he is doing like we talked about in that automat show he's doing what many people without much money would do in automats he's asking people for their crackers he's making a, he tries to make a ketchup sandwich. He tries to put ketchup on a cracker, and it goes all over wow. his pants. So this is like, it's, it's almost like at this point, he's reaching a, a nadir, 
not quite there yet. He's reaching an nadir, but it's also kind of a almost a house of horrors freak show element that's happening. Like like the weirdness of New York is really starting to get to him, and his um, his dreams are shattered. But he does finally, eventually, he goes back to Times Square to Forty Second Street and does acquire a client. Yeah, he decides that okay. He knows what he's got to do. He says to him in, himself in the mirror, you know what you need to do. And he goes out to 42nd Street. And a young man, a student, walks up to him. A student played by Bob Balaban. Now, I'm. this is... Ugh, I love... Anyone who loves Christopher Guest movies or Wes Anderson movies loves Bob Balaban. He is a staple of of all of those films. Uh, he's always he's, he always plays sort of the the dry straight man in those characters, and like people play off of that uh, for for comedic effect. Yeah, he is like a young young actor in this, and he solicits. Joe Buck for sex. They go to a movie theater, and it's not even a porn theater, by the way. They're just a, it's a oh. there's some sort of a sci-fi film, I think. Yeah, uh, again, remember from our Forty Second Street show in the seventies, movie theaters don't all just switch. You know, they don't flip a switch and just become porn theaters. Yeah. Um, they start doing B-rated or B B B films or second rate or whatever second run, not second rate. But they're showing old movies, or in this case, it's like some weird sci-fi film about like a lost in space theme, mm-hmm. which is very typical of late 60s. I mean, there's some of that going on. Later, we'll see some marquees for things like the twisted sex. Mm-hmm. Like there's like there's sort of these like sexploitation Euro films that are beginning to infiltrate the district. But anyway, back to back to Bob Balaban and cozying up to Joe in the theater Having a sexual encounter, they get their business done there. While they're doing their business on the screen, we have a montage of a rocket launching. You know, there are all kinds of like hilarious visuals. And he is also, as it's happening, Joe is fantasizing about Annie. We go back to Annie. Then we cut to a bathroom in the theater where the poor kid is throwing up in a sink because this is probably the first encounter he's had. Then he admits to Joe that he doesn't actually have $25. Joe tries to rough him up because that's that's what he's got to do in these situations to get money. But he he just doesn't have the heart. The boy does end up trying to give him his watch, but then he just lets him go. Right. Well, no, he tries to take the watch. And, and the boy says, please don't. My mother will kill me. My mother will just die. My mother. Just... So he just lets him go. When he walks out of the theater... So he's on 42nd Street. He leaves. It's early in the morning. He's walking out onto 42nd Street. We are positioned, the camera's positioned at the north side of 42nd Street near 8th Avenue looking down. Because back in the distance, far in the distance, you can see uh, on the south side of the street the new Amsterdam Theater. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are. We're like at the, the north side of the street over by 8th looking down. And we see a mix of kind of like porn titles and like odd titles, like you said. We see The Twisted Sex. Uh, we see Sex Diary. But we also see the 1968 Faye Dunaway film, The Thomas Crown Affair. <laughs> wow. What a, what a mix of entertainments. Now, the next scene, now the movie does, it's not perfect in its sort of uh, depicting areas accurately. Um, you know, they, they just want to find the right, you know, the right setting like so so for the next scene they're at a he's walking by a diner looks inside and sees Rizzo at the counter yeah and the a diner which by the way has been open all night and 
has a breakfast special. Juice, donut, and coffee or tea for 35 cents. <laughs> and Those I, were the yeah. days. <laughs> I mean, I, the only reason I say that, to preface that, is that um, when they then leave the diner at some point, and you clearly see a place called the Hotel Kimberly, which was lo- actually located up on 71st Street. So I doubt that Buck wandered up to 71st Street, that they just they wanted to use this c- corner because it was very picturesque. And, well, at least they're still in New York. <laughs> right. We'll come back to the Hotel Kimberly in a second. Uh-huh. But while they're in that diner, they they kind of make up. I mean, at first, you know, obviously, Joe is mad. He's mad that he's get, he's wasted $20 on Rizzo. But they decide to kind of like, you know, Rizzo's saying, "How do you how do you like O'Daniel flipping out like that?" You know. So, this could have been an explosive reunion between the two of them, and instead, just like everything else with Joe, or most things with Joe, it isn't really that explosive. No. He's kind of a softy, um, and they walk out together. And yes, they walk out, and right behind them, you see Hotel Kimberly with a sign, Transients. Yes. Right? <laughs> now, you did a little research uh-huh. in your blog post about the Kimberly. Yes. Um, I think I said 71st earlier, 74th, Broadway mm. and 74th. And you realize that because the exterior of the Apple Bank building, which is still there, it's one of the lovelier buildings of the Upper West Side, is there in a cross shot. And this was actually a very glamorous hotel for the day. At one point, Lucille Ball lived there. But at this point, clearly New York, it's, it's slid down in prominence and it's just more of a transient hotel now. Yeah. You know, speaking of Lucille Ball, I, I saw your note about that and I looked into it. In the book by Barry Monish called Lucille Ball FAQ. Uh-huh. I don't know if that oh. that one's on your bookshelf. Um, she lived here with a few different friends because it was a women's only hotel back in the 30s. She lived there in 1931 and she would she by herself. And she later quipped that while she was living there, quote, a gang war broke out in the neighborhood. And while she was taking a bath, a bullet hit the tub and drained all the water. <laughs> what? Here? Really? Yeah, I mean... That's probably Lucille Ball just being Lucy. I don't think that that really happened. Um, <laughs> I also, that would be an extraordinary thing to happen on the Upper West Side of the 1930s. But, I mean, who knows? Who can say? Also, there was an article in the Times in 1974, so five years after the movie came out, mentioning that the Kimberly Hotel, West 74th Street, was once rated as one of the worst crime centers on the West Side where prostitution flourished. Oh. And it, was, it had just in 74 been boarded up and was going to be converted into like an elder care facility. Mm. And so, it shouldn't be confused with today's Kimberly Hotel. Yeah, oh, yeah. Which on <laughs> East 50th. Which doesn't have like shut up bathtubs or anything like that. Or Lucille Ball. But in fact, Rizzo does not, Rizzo's not taking Joe to the Hotel Kimberly. He's taking him down to his, his flat, his apartment in the East Village. Now, how do we know that that's where this apartment, which is a squat, right? It's a squ- I mean, I, I can, we can only assume because what, in fact, what we really see is more akin to like an apocalypse, right? It's essentially buildings are being knocked down. These old tenements are being, are being knocked down. It's urban renewal. But it's all around, like it's almost every, you almost don't even see like any normal quote unquote buildings here. Uh, and in fact, that's, what, uh, that's the kind of building that Rizzo here lives in, a condemned building. Yeah, his um, the, all the windows on it have big X's and tape, and he says to Joe, the X on the windows means the landlord can't collect rent, which is convenient. <laughs> 
I got my own private entrance here. You're the only one who knows about it. So he's he squatting. He's he's a squatter. And then they walk in and there's a fridge, like a broken fridge on the bottom. He's like, oh yeah, I've been meaning to, <laughs> to take that fridge up. I mean, like, there is no way that Rizzo can like walk up the <laughs> stairs with that fridge. So he's been waiting for somebody oh, like Joe. We should add, we should add by, by the way, one thing we didn't really say is Rizzo's health oh, yeah. is very impaired by this point. We're already kind of seeing that he's coughing and he's very, very weak. Uh, he gets progressively sweatier throughout the movie. He gets um, weaker and he already he's already kind of unstable and he has, he has a very distinct limp and problems walking, which Joe pretty much ignores like he doesn't most really of the movie, yeah. yeah so which is another endearing quality about joe i mean they, they are the ultimate odd couple and in fact i'm like odd couple is is an appropriate thing to say here because this next series of scenes is like the odd couple well it's like it's almost what's well, comedic it's like a play yeah and another thing about his apartment uh without the, electric without electricity it's very drab but for the posters of oranges and travel posters from Florida. Because we find out that Rizzo dreams of moving to Florida. That's his paradise. That's where he wants to be. Jo no, Joe falls asleep because he's exhausted. And we get a dreams flashbacks that are quite vivid. Yeah, we see Annie again. They're making love. Can I say that? That's I, I hate that phrase, but they're... The way it's depicted here, yes. They're passionate. Uh, there's a storm, a brewing, lightning and thunder. We see Annie being pulled from a car naked. We see a kind of gang of thugs. They're they're grabbing her. They're actually it looks like sexually assaulting Joe. Both as well. of them, yes. Yeah. They're both they are both raped in this scene. And then we see Annie being hauled off by uh, police and by the authorities. And we find out that from various clues that Annie has been taken away to some kind of facility. She has actually lost her her uh, mental abilities. Well, or they're locking her up because she's sexually promiscuous, you know. So there's anyway, it's a they it's call a, her crazy Annie. We don't really know exactly what that means. It's it's just it's a sort of a jumble of imagery that you decide for yourself, audience. But it, it's um, disturbing. It's it's. It's yeah, it's very disturbing. So that's his that's the sort of nightmare that he's having. Yeah, and we wake up. Actually, the radio is on. Rizzo's listening to news reports of war casualties in Vietnam. Another placement here in American history. When Joe wakes up, he has a conversation with Rizzo here, and Rizzo agrees that Joe can stay with him, can live there, because he's locked out of his hotel, only if he will stop calling him Ratso and will call him by his name, Rico. Right. right. He says, call, call me Rico in my own goddamn place. Yes. That's what he says. And of course, Joe continues to call him Ratso in his apartment. Oh, but then also apologizes. I mean, he struggles with this. He's like, Rico, 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 Rico. And then we really get into kind of the, the odd couple slash... Yes, yeah, so uh, a series of bonding scenes, would a, you say? Yes. Right, a kind of montage out of the little rascals as they steal fruit from a, a, a street vendor uh, with the with the port authority in the background, the, the, the ramps of the bus station in the background. Rico's making a kind of stew with stolen veggies. That's where Rico also realizes that they need to go. 
They need to go to Florida. They shouldn't be there. He says, Miami Beach, that's where you can score, John. In New York City, no rich lady buys that cowboy crap anymore. They're laughing at you behind your back on the street. And frankly, Joe, you're beginning to smell. (laughs) And that's a bad thing for a stud. And he says, yeah, basically he says the cowboy crap don't appeal to nobody except every Jackie on 42nd Street. Ah. So uh, he hurts Joe's feelings. He uses the term Jackie to refer to male, uh, to gay males. And Mm -hmm. I guess, yeah. So then they go through the cleanup phase. They go to they go to the laundromat. So there's sort of like because this is where you really see Rizzo as as a true like scam artist, a con man, because he manages to get their clothes cleaned for free. He, uh, they go to a hat shop and then um, steals a hat, steals a hat, and then uh, they break into a like a shoe shine area and he shines his shoes and other people's shoes actually, including a police officer's. Yeah. We also realized that that Rika's father had been a shoe shine. And had busted his back and had actually died early from inhaling all of the fumes. So then Rico gives him a haircut and says, there you go, you handsome devil, you. So it, it is a very sweet buddy slash couple. Well, he cleans him up and then goes and gets him a job, courtesy of like stealing some, someone else's clients at an, another escort service, namely a place called Perfect Gentleman Escort Service. Now, my question to you, Tom, uh-huh. is... I think we're supposed to actually think this is a perfectly normal escort service and is for perfect gentlemen, right? That that there's nothing underhanded or sleazy about it. Well, I think so, because this is this is an operation, an agency that has a street level entrance with a painted sign on the door. It looks like a nail salon or like, you know, it looks like you're going to a hair salon. I mean, it's got like curvy, you know, cursive painting on the window and a gentleman is coming out. It looks like a, a very attractive college-age guy. Someone from Mad Men, almost. You yes, know? who's very well-groomed, and he's on his way to an assignment to take, ostensibly, some nice lady out for dinner. But what Rizzo does is, as the man is catching a cab, uh, Rizzo comes up to him and steals the address out yes. of his pocket that he was supposed to uh, meet a client. His so, assignment. Yeah, so Rizzo takes the number, calls the perfect gentleman and say, oh, sh- we won't need your you know services anymore, and then takes Joe to that location to meet up with that client himself. Right. He, uh, the, the assignment is to take a, a lady out who's waiting for him at the Berkeley Hotel for Women, uh, which is located at 700 Fifth Avenue at 55th Street, which is today's peninsula hotel and rizzo is just like can you believe he says would you believe a whole goddamn hotel filled with nothing but lonely ladies i could set up an office in there (laughs) well we think that that would be a good idea but what actually happens is like joe goes inside and so we don't really know what's happening Meanwhile, Rizzo is outside across the street in front of some beautiful display windows. He's across Fifth Avenue. I think he's in front of Harry Winston's. Yeah. So, and he's having these extraordinary fantasies about Florida. It is, I want to be in that Florida. Like at one point, like the fantasy. I think you and I visited that version of Florida (laughs) once. But the Florida goes as far 
as like him actually making food for a group of people. Like it goes beyond women, the, right? It it's just, all <laughs> it's, he is in a fantasy of middle aged women who like are being wheeled around in wheelchairs. They have <laughs> they have nose protectors on. They're playing Yahtzee. He's calling out bingo. He's arranging buffets, and women are calling down from him. Rizzo, Rizzo, Rico, Rico, yeah. from their balconies, waving cash at him. <laughs> so That's this, his vision. This is his vision: is really to be Joe Buck's management, and like to have all of these women throw themselves at him, and for him to be the star of the show, the center of uh, Florida life here. So he's got some like w- issues too that are clearly unresolved. I mean, this is that is his fantasy. Yeah. So unfortunately, though, we don't get too much further into that fantasy because Joe Buck gets thrown out of the hotel because blows it. it seems that this woman was actually looking for some sort of some sort of perfect gentleman of which we know Joe Buck is not. And we also see that despite he's the fact that he's been cleaned up, he has fresh freshly washed clothes and a new haircut, we see him reach for her bottom and pinch her, and she slaps him, and then we see him actually get the heave-ho and fall down the steps of, humiliating. of the hotel. Yeah. And then we get to yet another sequence that, that sort of sends these two into further despair. Spirals. The, the, the jokes, the funny, the funny business is over. No, it, darkness has now fallen upon the film. We're back in the apartment, and it's a cold, coughing place. Uh, demolition is happening next door. Rizzo is coughing in a frightening way, even though he's still smoking. Water that had once been drip dripping out of the faucet in the sink is now frozen in place. And on the radio... The only thing that brings any life into the house is an ad, an ad jingle for orange juice on ice, right? So they're listening to this Florida orange juice producers ad. They're both dreaming of Florida, listening to this really kind of catchy tune with lyrics such as break away from old habits, serve real Florida orange juice, orange juice on ice. And the montage, however takes us into a pawn shop where Joe, at the end of the jingle, hands over his radio for $5. Yeah, so things are figuratively and literally falling apart for the across the street, the building's being knocked over. Um, Yeah. it's It's a total mess. And they're losing, in the radio, they're actually losing their one connection to the outside world. That's true. They're they're like, they're taking a step farther into their own kind of like unreal existence. I mean, we could even say they're being drained of their life force literally because then Joe even goes and gets a blood transfusion and gets $9. From a blood bank. Yeah, which is... Like, following another montage of Times Squares are walking around, we see the Coke sign, we see the Gillette Right Guard oh, deodorant uh-huh. billboard that sprays smoke into the air. We see all kinds of prostitutes, including one who seems to have some sort of a paranoid episode. It's just dark and scary. So the fact that he gives his own blood, now we're veering also into some kind of like Christian theme, if we want to go there. You know, he's literally like sacrificing his own blood to help save Rizzo Mm -hmm. because he's trying to raise some money to get Rico out of there. He gets back up into the the apartment and Rico's coughing and he looks Rico looks terrible. He's mm-hmm. never looked worse. His only comfort in fact is a coat that he's somehow stolen that he's sort of wrapped in because they have I mean there's no heat in the apartment. They decide to visit Rico's father's gravesite. 
Now, yes. they, as they walk off, they're on some kind of overpass. And we see next to them, ironically placed, a giant billboard uh, that says, Steak for everybody, every lunch and dinner. It's for Northeast Yellowbirds to Florida. Um, and I looked oh, that yeah. up. Uh-huh. It's interesting. That was the Northeast Airlines which operated a, um, in the late 60s, operated a Yellowbird service, um, a new kind of Boeing plane that they had introduced called the Yellowbirds that flew New Yorkers and people on the East Coast. They were based out of Boston, flew them directly, of course, down to Florida and had introduced steak dinners um, (laughs) on the the flights. I'm sure they were delicious. (laughs) And Northeast, however, would merge with Delta in 1972. So this is kind of the end of the run. Oh, wow. Um, They are, by the way, visiting Rizzo's father in Calvary Cemetery, which would even become an even more iconic film spot just a couple years later as it was used centrally in The Godfather. Hmm. And that, yeah, it's a moody, it's a moody moment. I mean, they're walking around tombstones. Uh, We also find out that Joe's grandmother, um, who had raised him, Sally Buck, died without letting me know. We see that oh, Joe... That's what, yeah, that's what he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's come back from some kind of military service. He's in his civilian clothing, and he's sitting on the front porch of the house he was raised in with a for sale sign, and it's in disrepair. So we also find out that Joe had served. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting... <laughs> it's a little bit more biographical. And then the movie takes what I would call a very surprising turn... They're in another diner. And by the way, I hope everyone has appreciated the fact that like this half this film is in various diners uh, all over the world. And they all look alike. <laughs> Pretty yeah, much. Except yeah. for that automat with the with yeah. the trick mouse. So they're at this diner, just like mourning their own life, when these two very like mod gothic people walk in one of them takes a picture of Joe Buck and hands him a flyer for a party. Right. Do you notice how big those people, how tall they yeah. were? These like super tall hipsters in leather coats. Yes. Hansel and Gretel <laughs> um, is their name in the movie. Although the um, the woman is actually Viva, um, one of Andy Warhol's superstars. And so they've invited Joe and then by extension or accident, they've also basically invited <laughs> Rizzo. He's like, I can't go. I'm not dressed for a party. And meanwhile, I mean, he looks horrible he has never looked worse <laughs> and and this party is at a place called broadway in harmony lane a location you know that has been invented but is but is clearly based on the electric circus yeah and uh, uh, st mark's yeah. place so which brings us actually to to they go the, they the, go to the, yeah they go to the party and it is exactly the most like psychedelic 1960s party you could possibly dream of and we know that we're inferring that this is supposed to be St. Mark's Place because there's a big stoop out front, right, yeah. when they get there. Mm-hmm. They go up, they they walk in the door, and there is the longest and steepest staircase that you know we're led to believe they have to get up to, like, the fourth floor. And it's just one of these endless staircases that goes all the way up. In Rizzo, meanwhile, like, it's, it's a miracle that he's even made it there, <laughs> and he's standing at the bottom of the staircase, like, unwell. Now, how is he going to make it up those stairs? And this is a moment where, you know, Joe looks at him and says, oh, my God, let's do you have a comb? Let's like let's comb your hair. Let's like mop your face. And it's a very, very tender moment. 
in the movie. It's, it's probably the most, I mean, and there's a lot of coupling that happens in this movie, but this is perhaps the most tender moment between two people yeah. in the whole film. Joe literally combs Rizzo's hair as Rizzo's kind of like hugging his torso. It's beautiful. And so they enter this Andy Warhol wonderland. Somehow they make it up the stairs. <laughs> where everyone is like, uh, everyone's very sophisticated and effete and pretentious and on drugs. It's kind of like the party scene in Laura Mars at the beginning. So it, in this scene are actually a lot of these Andy Warhol acolytes, like Ondine and Ultraviolet. Andy Warhol was even asked to appear in this film. Oh. Um, but uh, uh, did, he had did, other plans. But also um, Paul Morrissey appears in this movie, and he would later direct Flesh that was made at the same time and was almost a parody of this movie. And that movie was on such a shoestring budget that they were actually able to release Flesh before Midnight Cowboy actually came out. So there's Have like, you seen Flesh? It's, let's just say it is nowhere near the quality of Midnight Cowboy, although it certainly has its sort of prurient charms. <laughs> But but it's just interesting to see. Listener, all these... you're missing the face that went with that. <laughs> but it's also interesting. But it's interesting to see these connections in the midst of like the haze that is this um, that is this party with a soundtrack. There's a kind of like weird mod female vocalist who's singing. We see the bro- <laughs> what, what Rizzo refers to as the brother and sister duo, <laughs> Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel are kind of like wandering around. A joint is passed to Joe. By the character Shirley, who is played Brenda Vaccaro, who um, who he says, thanks, ma'am. And she kind of does a double take like here they are in this party and this guy dressed as a cowboy has just called her ma'am, which just <laughs> seems really kind of like unhip. And he smokes the joint. He's obviously not familiar with marijuana. No, he no. smokes it like it's a cigarette. Yes, <laughs> which would explain why he gets like extremely tripped out. At one point, he he's like wearing glasses. He goes up to Rizzo and he's like, "Guess who it is? It's me." <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you think? I like. I thought that he was pretending to be Andy Warhol. Well, I mean that there might Maybe actually might joke. be something an in joke there actually. But yeah. to me, the best part of all of these scenes in this party is Brenda Vaccaro. Like yeah. when, it, when the camera comes back to her, she just has this, she's just like an otherworldly presence because she kind of understands, it's almost like she understands what's going on. Yeah, she's with it. She's like, she's plugged into the scene. She also seems extremely sophisticated and she's yes. also humored by Joe and she's totally attracted to him. There's so much like information conveyed from her with no dialogue. You know, from I'm, actually from both of them, she yeah. has I think a similar gift that he has. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of their like eyes and facial expressions. Oh yeah, I guess they're that's what we call a good actor. <laughs> good actor. <laughs> yes, we do. And, and it's all very trippy and druggy. There's incense. There's haunting music. Joe starts laughing uncontrollably. They're like making love in a bla- in a dark room at some oh, oh, point. Yeah, that's, that with was, red that's like, a weird scene where they're in like an where there's like developing fluid. I mean, they, I, I assume they ruined those prints. I assume. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rizzo's outside like shoving like salami in his pocket, but also kind of like getting into some spats and. Just, like, really not having a good time. Well, he's caught stealing food. Yeah. He he can't believe... He has never been in a situation like this um, as an adult. I mean, look, he's fallen on such rough times. 
when is the last time that Rizzo has been in a place where they're giving away food? Like, That's never. That's true. In fact, someone comes up and says, well, you don't need to steal it. It's all for free. Right. And he, but, you know, you ran out of salami. Maybe somebody should run down to the delicatessen, <laughs> is what he says. But they can't get over the fact he's getting so hot and sweaty. Yeah. And maybe he needs fresh air. And so, yeah, he's kind of getting testy. So so he, like, they leave the party with uh, with Joe and Brenda Vaccaro's character. Shirley. Shirley. Um, Joe and Shirley are, like, walking down the steps, and they're actually negotiating a price. Right. Well, time. well, Shirley and Rizzo are negotiating the price, because Rizzo's the one who's the manager, quote-unquote, and says $20. Right, but then as they continued walking down the stairs, Rizzo is sort of walking more slowly because he's weak. They're not paying attention to him because they're flirting and they're stoned. And they start kissing at the bottom of the stairs as... Rizzo then just takes the most painful tumble. This stunt person who did this fall, it is an extraordinary fall. I mean, fall, and quite frankly, if you saw this in person, you would be traumatized. Freaked out. Because it seems like he's dead. This, like, terrible fall down the steps. Several flights. Yeah. But then somehow manages to stand up. Their reaction is very peculiar to me. Yeah, well, Joe is, first of all, they are stoned. We should mention that Brenda Vaccaro's character, Shirley, has also negotiated or been forced to pay a dollar for cab fare to Rizzo. Yes. <laughs> so she's a little annoyed by him. And after they, they realize that he's okay, she's like, well, yeah, and plus you got a dollar to get, you know, cab fare to get home. So they're, she's just kind of like, whatever, he's fine, let's get out of here. And they, they hop in her car. She's mm-hmm. driven down, probably from the Upper East Side, and they go back to her apartment. Back up at Shirley's apartment, they make an attempt to make love, but it seems that Joe, for we, we don't know re- for what reason, perhaps it's it's the drugs, cannot perform. Right. And she says, well, it happens. Well, it ain't never happened to me before. He's embarrassed. She thinks that he must be in a relationship with Rizzo or oh, that yeah. he's just gay. Well, she uh, she ref- she infers that he might be gay. And the thing is, she doesn't have a problem. Like she doesn't like she's really going with it. Yeah. In fact, she has already asked when they were back at the party. She asked them if they're a couple mm-hmm. oh, that, that's right. before right. she negotiated the price. She's like, don't tell me you're a couple. But here they're playing scribbage. And he tries to spell money, M-O-N-Y. Because that's how it's seen on the Mutual of New York sign. Right. And she thinks that's the most hilarious thing. Like, who would think that that's spelled, you know, she realizes that he's not very well educated. Right. He reattempts to make love well, let's with just Shirley. Say they, they played scribbage, got turned on. And everything yes. worked. And everything worked finally. That's true. Well, and later in the morning, we we actually see what her life is really like. It is an amazing apartment. It is gorgeous. Many, many rooms. And she's on the phone with one of her friends, Marjorie, and says, really, Marjorie, I think it might be good for you. What night's Phil's poker game? And we realize she is calling around. She's dressed impeccably. And she's calling around um, to various friends and trying to set them up with Joe as well. So this really seems like perhaps it's his ticket into the whole industry here. Because he has now a whole market of her friends that could be potential clients. $20, each of them. She pays him $20 and he runs out of, and he says goodbye. She says goodbye with a shrug. 
and he disappears out of her apartment. It's interesting because now we have bookended the films with the first time he's been in an apartment in a situation like this, and he hands a woman $20. Mm. And now the last time that he's in the same situation, and a woman has now handed him $20. But he takes the 20 bucks and runs back to Rizzo. And actually uses some of it to buy medicine. Because yeah. Rizzo's back there, still very sick. He even serves him a little soup, which is a very sweet gesture. And that's when we realize that Rico is really sick. And in fact, he tells Joe that he's afraid because he hasn't been able to stand up. He keeps falling down and he's afraid of what they do to people who can't walk. Afraid of being sent to Bellevue Hospital. And Joe wants to go get him a doctor, but no, a doctor is going to turn him in. What Rico wants is to get to Florida. Joe says, okay, well, he's thinking, how am I going to get Rico to Florida? Well, I've got Thursday, a date with one of Shirley's friends, this this Marjorie um, that Shirley has set up for Thursday night. And so I've got that money coming in on Thursday. So he goes back out and he decides to call Shirley and maybe ask her for some advice or maybe some advance or something to help get some money to help get a doctor or, or buy the bus tickets or something. But he get but he does get her secretary, right? What well, he gets the secretary and says, like, well, when is when is Shirley gonna be back? And we wait. We don't know what the response is, but Joe says, well, hell can't wait that long. Uh-huh. So I guess um, we're led to believe that the secretary has said when hell freezes over. So something has happened. Maybe Shirley has come to her senses and realized. Sobered up. Sobered probably. up and said, you know what? I can't risk everything with some. I can't do that. With some hustler. So then he, of course, has to resort to uh, hustling on 42nd Street again because he just needs to make he just needs to make enough money to get them on a bus. Right. But first he needs to blow off some steam and he heads to an arcade. To the Fascination Arcade on 42nd Street, uh, which when we talked about in our Times Square in the 1970s podcast, was an arcade, had skee-ball and everything, but wasn't a very popular spot to pick up Hustlers yeah. on 42nd Street. And here he's playing some kind of a cowboy and Indian game. He's trying to shoot cowboys or something off of uh, off of horses. And a new character pops up, a Thompson Freelock townie visiting from Chicago here for a papermaking convention and looking to have a little fun. This is like, you know, when I first saw this scene, I thought, oh, this is kind of fun. I mean, he's going to be with, an, there's a new gay character brings him up to his hotel room because he has to make a quick phone call mm-hmm. to his mother, we find out. He's telling him, look, oh, I have this perfect little Italian restaurant. Don't worry, everybody knows me there. So it is kind of interesting. Like, he has this, he has a routine when he comes to New York from <laughs> Chicago. He's a man of means. He's kind of a dandy dresser. He picks up some trade. He, like, does something in a hotel. He takes him out for dinner. He pays for everything. That is his existence. There's even a religious kind of parallel to what we saw earlier in the film because he then he then offers up Joe Buck his his necklace, a St. Christopher necklace. Right, because something has gone wrong after he talks to his mother. We just see him looking up at Joe and Joe saying, why did you bring me here? Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm sorry, I've been bad. God, I loathe my life. He, You see that he's also tormented, which is, again... It's a real pity that we don't see any happy gay people. No, they a lot of them seem very self-hating in this movie. Yeah. And then the whole scene gets really bad. It takes a very ugly turn. Townie 
tries to give him money for the trip. He gives him $10. Joe needs 57 He doesn't have any more money. Joe's asking for $57. That's like more than $400 yeah. today. The guy doesn't have that in his wallet. And and he starts, Joe starts beating him up and it gets very bloody. And in, a, a, in some cross cut, we do see that they he managed to get some money and takes Rizzo, helps him out of the apartment and tries to get him down to the bus station. But in that cross cutting, what you we see what he's done to get that money. And essentially, he's killed this man. Well, we don't really know, right? Do we know that he's killed him? I mean, it it seems like he's strangling him with the f- or like pressing the phone down into his face at the very end and I I can't see how that ends up well for 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 that gentleman. And we know that he gets blood on his coat because the next scene has them in a bus heading to Florida, Rizzo and Joe, and Rizzo looks at him and says, "God, did you kill somebody? You've got blood on your coat." So something's wrong. We're actually going through the Lincoln Tunnel. We're back in Jersey. And we realize it's going to be 31 hours on that bus to get to Miami. And Rico has never looked worse. Yeah, I mean, at at one point, even I think as they are pulling into the state of Florida, finally, he begins crying because what's happened is he has wet his pants. And he's embarrassed. But Buck is actually... He's kind of, his spirits are oddly up. Joe tries to cheer Rizzo up and he kind of makes him laugh about it. They pull over at a rest stop and Joe goes and buys them both new clothes. So Joe at this point becomes the maternal character, actually the maternal figure yes. um, in Rizzo's life, which is a very interesting thing. And, and then discards his old image of being a cowboy and buys new clothes and gets rid of the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots. Replacing it with a kind of conventional sort of like yellow, very appealing yeah, I mean, Polo it, yeah, I mean, in a way, down. I, perhaps he's taking on a new persona now that he's in Florida. But even though he was meant to be the cowboy into Florida because that was going to be his shtick, but in fact, he's shed that perhaps because he's he might be people might be looking for him. You never know. And in the back of the bus, then in a, another sweet scene, the last thing that he does to Rizzo is change him. Um, he changes him into these new pants that he just bought for him. Um, and he and even calls him Rico, finally. He's like, Ratso, oh, I mean, Rico. Like, he's finally getting it right. Like, things are finally going to be the way that, uh, that Rico wanted them to be. And Rico is looking pretty bad and closing his eyes, kind of looking out the window. And uh, Joe says to him, you know, it just occurs to him, when he gets to Florida, maybe he's going to... You know, this cowboy thing is finished. Um, he says when he gets to Florida, he's going to get some kind of outdoor job because that the hustler thing is done. Huh? What do you think about that, Rico? What do you think? And he looks over. No response from Rico because Rico has died. The, the bus then pulls over. Everybody looks back. And the driver asks Joe, even though he's not kin, uh, to close Rico's eyes. And the bus drives off again. The driver comes across saying, okay, folks, nothing to worry about. We'll be in Miami in just a few minutes. Joe puts his arms around Rico in the back of the bus. And the film ends as we hear the harmonica theme song again. Women looking back at them. Some women preparing to arrive in Miami. People generally wondering who this odd couple is in the back of the bus. 
And in the reflection from the outside of the bus, we see palm trees going by, then Art Deco hotels. We know we're in Miami, and the scene fades to black. The only thing I want to add to that beautiful description of the final scene is that when people went to see this film in 1969, the only thing they knew about Dustin Hoffman was this film, The Graduate, which they had seen two years earlier. The Graduate also ends with a scene on a bus. These are the see, these two scenes would have been easily comparable. Yeah. Um, and what's but what's interesting is the end of the graduate is completely tragic in a different way and actually shows these two people who had like had finally gotten together realizing that now their life was ahead of them and, and did they make the right choice. This scene is clearly more final but has like a lot more affection in it than that scene did. So, I mean, it's an interesting that audiences would have watched The Graduate, would have seen these two scenes side by side in their heads, at least those who went to the movies a lot. And Dustin Hoffman would later complain that, um, or would later admit that he was afraid that this movie, that this role would ruin his career, that people would come knowing him from The Graduate, that boy from The Graduate, and would think, Oh my gosh! Like here's like some sleazy actor. You know what? What had he just done? Had he committed career suicide? I mean, as thankfully as we know, that did not ruin his career. No, no, it did not. Well, Well. listener, I guess you have made it through uh, through Midnight Cowboy with us. We hope you enjoyed this rescreening. Yes, uh, please go out and watch the movie if you haven't seen it in a while. And hopefully the things that we have said on this show will will inspire you to at least stop and start the movie. You know, take about five hours to watch the movie so you can like you can freeze frame it. The movie at um, least freeze on that one shot outside of Times Square. You can get this movie on Amazon Prime for free for if free you're a Prime but, member. Yeah, you know, and rentals and on other digital streaming services. So thank you very much for joining us for joining Buck and Rico. Joe, oh, did he just go by Buck? <laughs> A lot of the people just called him Buck because he was like a young Buck. Joe and Rico through the streets of New York in the late 1960s. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. As we always say, we couldn't do the show without you. And that is very, very true. Um, Thank you. Yes, thank you. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. We'll see you at the movies. 